Well, I grew up every morning after breakfast uh, having Flintstones vitamins. Some of you may have eaten these, but tiny little uh, vitamins that were shaped like Fred or Wilma or Barney or whoever it may have been. And uh, I think the theory, a whole generation of us kind of grew up on these vitamins. I think the theory was that the vitamin would compensate for the terrible breakfast we were eating. And so uh, I would eat Cocoa Krispies, you know, every morning for breakfast. And then my mom would give us that vitamin and we'd be off to school. And uh, if you've ever tasted those, those of you who ate them, You know, they're not great, but they're not terrible, right? They taste like either a really tasty medicine or a really bad candy, one or the other. There's kind of somewhere in between. And uh, so she would hand those to me and my brothers every morning and uh, we'd eat them, move on with our day. Uh, Now, fast forward a few years, probably two, three, four years uh, to the time that I was about 12 or 13. One morning I was in the bathroom that I shared with my younger brother And this bathroom had two drawers on either side of the sink. And one of the drawers was broken. It didn't open very well. There was a tiny little opening where it was kind of diagonal and uh, things would occasionally slip in there. Uh, We kept all of our essential stuff in the other drawer. Well, this one morning I was getting ready and I dropped something through that little opening in the broken drawer, which we hadn't opened in some time. And so I grabbed the handle and I forced it open so that I could get out whatever it is I dropped. And as I pulled that drawer open, uh, I looked down and there in that drawer were several years of Flintstones vitamins that my younger brother had dropped into the drawer. Now, uh, my first reaction was, uh, that's crazy. Like he hasn't been eating these for years and he's been eating the Cocoa Krispies or whatever the rest of us. What's going to happen to him? My second reaction uh, was, why didn't he throw them away, right? Why is it that all of this time he's just been dropping them in this drawer instead of at the bottom of the trash can? Uh, because in the mind of, you know, an eight-year-old or nine-year-old, uh, you have a rebellious heart, but not a clever mind, right? And so uh, he was unable to just think through the long-term consequences. I guess he figured uh, no one's ever going to open that drawer again. You know, I don't know what would have happened when they began to overflow the sides and spill out. Uh, I don't know what his end game really was with this, uh, but he got in a lot of trouble. And from that point on, he had to eat them in the presence of my mom uh, before he could leave. Now, I share that story uh, to make this point that sometimes that is how you and I handle sin in our lives. When we sin, instead of dealing with it right away, uh, we stash it away into a little private area, a little private drawer, and we think, no one's ever going to open that. And so we may have these sins uh, stacked away and they begin to pile up into some sort of mess in our lives. And we go, you know what? I'm not going to let anybody open that drawer. I'm not going to let anybody see that. Certainly not my friends or family. And if I can help it, I'm not going to let God into that little drawer. And so we hide. And over time, that sin that we're hiding, that we're keeping in the dark, creates problems in our relationship with God. We begin to feel distant from him. And maybe we're not even sure why, but we know that when we pray, it doesn't seem like uh, he answers. We know that it doesn't seem like we are feeling the same in worship anymore, but we're not sure why. And our relationships with others begin uh, to perhaps have problems. We find ourselves pulling back and feeling distant from others because there's secrets that we're hiding, that we're afraid we'll see the light of day. And so we hide them away. 
Now, biblically, there's a solution for the problem, and that solution is called confession. As we talk about the disciplines, we now come this morning to this discipline of confession. And uh, confession isn't a discipline that any of us really like. It's not one that any of us really say, I want to do this. I want to open myself up to God and to others so they can look into my life and see the things that are wrong, right? It's been said, confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. And there's some truth to that. Because when I open up my sin to God or to another person, that may chip away at the perception that I want people to have of me that I'm perfect, that I'm sinless, that I've got it all together. It requires humility, a setting aside of my pride to be able to confess. It may be when you think about confession, you have a resistance to it uh, because maybe you grew up in a Catholic background and uh, for you confession was uh, maybe you approached it in a rote sort of way. And you got the impression that I have to drag out everything and confess it just right and do certain things in order for God to care for me and love me. But when we look biblically at what confession is, really what it is, is it is an opportunity for us as Christians to approach God, to approach our fellow believer and share clearly and honestly and straightforwardly those things that we have done to offend God, to offend others, and then to receive forgiveness. And it's a critical discipline because without it, we grow distant from God We grow distant from others and God is unable to work through us as he wants to work through us because we hold ourselves back. So we're going to look at confession this morning because it's so hard to do. I think for most of us, we may say, why bother? Why should I bother to confess my sins? And so we're going to look biblically at why and then we're going to look a little bit at how. How does this process work? We're going to be in Psalm 32 a lot this morning. So you want to turn there in your Bibles to Psalm 32. I'm going to look at some other passages as well, which will be up here, but we will uh, stick into Psalm 32 a whole lot. And the question is, why bother to confess? And then how do we do it? And my guess is that there are some of you here this morning, if not most of us here this morning, that would say, there are things I'm hiding, things I've never told anybody. Sins that I'm keeping in the dark. It may be this morning that the Spirit of God is moving in your heart to say, it's time to shine the light on these areas of my life and allow God in to transform me, to change me, to cleanse me from sin. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Okay, so the question as we begin is this, why confess our sin? Why bother to do it? We're going to look at a few reasons. First one is this, it restores our relationship with God. Confession restores our relationship with God. Psalm 32 verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then verse five, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. All right, in other words, he says, look, when I confessed it, God forgave me. It restored this happiness and this joy and this peace in my relationship with God. Uh, the passage that Chip read just a few minutes ago, 1 John 1, 5 through 10, John says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see what John is saying? We have an option here. We can either walk around in the dark saying, I'm going to hide these things in the dark. But if you do that over time, what happens is you're saying, God, you're incorrect about me. And you're making God out to be a liar because you say, look, this sin, it's really not that big a deal. Or I really haven't sinned. Or God, I'm not going to let you in. I don't believe you can really see it and deal with it. And so we make God a liar. And what happens is that produces this distance between us and God. And so we go around and we sing songs and we read the Bible and we say, I've got fellowship with him. I know him deeply. And it says, no, you don't. You're lying. And the truth isn't in you. Until you let the light shine on those corners of your life that you're keeping hidden. In our family of five, we use a lot of dishes. We make a big mess. It's hard to keep things clean. And if you're not right on top of it, it can get out of control really quickly. And so uh, multiple times a day, we have to rinse the dishes and put them in the dishwasher and keep things clean. Uh, About a week or so ago, uh, Shannon and the kids were out of town for a couple of nights. And so the first night they were gone, sat down, I ate my food, put the dishes in the sink and I looked at it and I just thought, not tonight. I'm not going to do them. Uh, we're, letting them, we're letting them sit. And so uh, I turned off the lights and I went to bed. Now, what if I told you that when I woke up the next morning, dishes were clean? They'd been washed, they'd been put away in the dishwasher. And you'd think, that's a miracle, right? I'm the only one in the house. Uh, maybe someone broke in, the dishes fairy broke in, did my dishes and then left, right? Uh, or you think, I'm lying to you, right? Which would be the case. The dishes were not done. Uh, when I woke up, they were still sitting there. They still had to be done. Turning off the light didn't fix it, right? Maybe some of you have experienced a situation in your home where you're walking through your living room or whatever and you spill something on the carpet, whether it's coffee, grape juice, whatever, something that's difficult to get out. And uh, you say, you know, that's going to be tough to get out. It's time to rearrange the furniture, right? So you, you go into your uh, living room and you move the sofas around and the chairs around and all this kind of stuff to hide that sin that's there or that stain that's there. Now, it doesn't get rid of it, does it? Eventually, you have to deal with it. If not until you sell the house, eventually you have to deal with it. Right? But that's the way some of us try to deal with sin. Right? We say, look, if I'm just quiet about it, if I just hide it, no one's going to know. And I can go on this way. And in public, I can sing the songs. I can put on a good face. I'm not going to let God too close because I don't want to admit my sin. I'm not going to let anybody else too close because if they get too close, they're going to see that I'm not who I want them to think I am. And so we hide. Psalm 32 says uh, this sin that we hide, it it eats us up. It eats away at us. And we'll, we'll see that in a second, Psalm 32, 3 and 4. John says, if you want to really know God, you've got to let the light shine in there. And I want to make a key theological distinction here. For those who know Jesus Christ, there's no danger that you're going to lose your salvation. In other words, when you trusted in Jesus Christ, you said, I am a sinner and God, I trust that Jesus died for all my sins. He took the penalty for all my sins. He rose again. And if you believe in him, you have eternal life. You don't need to fear that you're going to lose that. But on an ongoing basis... As a Christian, unconfessed sin will damage your fellowship with God. And that's what John is talking about here. When he talks about knowing God. 
It's an intimate, deep knowledge. You can't have that. Even if you know him and have eternal life, you will not have the knowledge of God that he wants you to have. You will not be effective in his service like he wants you to be if you're holding sin back. All right, the best way to think about it is a parent-child relationship. In a healthy family, a child will always know that no matter what they do, no matter what rebellion they commit, no matter what they say, they will always be a part of this family. However, on a day-to-day basis, if that child talks back, if that child disobeys, if that child does things that are wrong, those transgressions have to be reconciled before the relationship can really be restored, right? It may even be the other way around. In our situation, the parent may offend the child and you have to go to that child and say, I'm sorry, I wronged you. Will you forgive me? And that relationship is restored. Your position in the family was never in jeopardy. But what was in jeopardy? Your trust, your ability to relate well as parent and child. When we confess sin, it restores this relationship, really, so that we can trust God, so that he can work through us, so that we're not blocking the work he wants to do in our lives. Restores our relationship with God. Maybe you feel far from God today, and it could be because of a sin that you're holding on to from years past. You may need to let out into the light. Confession restores our relationship with God. Secondly, it restores our relationships with other people. When we say we are wrong and when we confess our sin and we ask for forgiveness, it has a huge impact on our relationships with one another. The scripture talks all the way through, especially in the New Testament, about forgiving one another in Jesus Christ. One good example is Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, I can forgive you whether or not you apologize, right? If you do something to offend me, I'm called to forgive whether or not you apologize. But let me say this, confession and apology certainly makes the forgiveness process smoother, doesn't it? If the person who has offended another goes and says, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I sinned, will you forgive me? Boy, if you've ever had somebody say that to you, you know it it opens up your heart to want to reconcile, to want to forgive. And it paves the way for an attitude and an atmosphere in the body of Christ of trust and love in which we then can move forward and do God's work together. It's hard to make disciples together, to share the gospel together, to worship together if I don't trust you and you don't trust me. But our temptation is to try to hide or to try to get out of full confession, right? So uh, let's say I say something unkind to my wife and I go to her and I say, sweetie, uh, mistakes were made in the past and they're regrettable. That's a politician's apology, isn't it? That's not going to work. I don't know about y'all, but that won't fly in my house. Another way we go about it is we say, look, I am really sorry that you were offended, right? No, that's not an apology either, is it? What I'm saying really is, yeah, things that were bad happened, but it's really, it's your fault. Okay? If you weren't so easily offended, this wouldn't be a problem, right? That's not an apology. Yet most of us have done it. No, biblical confession is when you go to the person and you say, I sinned against you. For example, I gossiped against you. I said things I shouldn't have. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? That's biblical confession. Once we've confessed it to God, we confess to the one that we've offended. And it restores those relationships. We try to practice this in our home. Between my wife and me, 
also with our kids. Instead of, uh, you know, one of the kids bops another on the head with a book, instead of just going, sorry, and running off to the other room, you look him in the eye. You say, I'm sorry that I injured your head with my book, right? Will you forgive me? And the other one says, yes, I forgive you. And then they're supposed to give each other a hug and a kiss and an Eskimo kiss and just keep doing that until they like each other again, right? <laughs> we try to practice this between the two of us as well. Because there's something life-giving about saying, I sinned, will you forgive me? Odds are the person that you've offended knows anyway, but even if they don't know, you're called to confession. And it restores those relationships, restores trust, allows us to make disciples and be effective in the work of God's kingdom. All right. So confession restores our relationship with God, restores our relationships with others. Thirdly, protects us from the consequences of sin. All right, Psalm 32, three to four. David says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In other words, he says, I didn't feel healthy. I didn't feel joyful. I didn't feel happy. Instead, I felt the hand of God heavy on me and I couldn't do the tasks that I was called to do as his representative and as his king because God's judgment was on my life. And maybe there are natural consequences as well. When I offend you or you offend me and it damages trust or it creates physical consequences in my life or spiritual and emotional consequences for me and for you. And yet confession biblically can begin the process of healing and restoration, can begin the process of God removing his hand of judgment and discipline from your life. James chapter five, verses 16 to 17 or 14 to 16, excuse me, says, if anyone among you, is anyone among you sick, then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And you see also in 1 Corinthians that Paul and James both say, if you are sick, if you are struggling with problems in your body, it may be because there's unconfessed sin in your life and the hand of God's judgment is on you. Now, not always. That's not the reason everybody always gets sick, but it may be that you need to confess a sin so you can be healed. And it doesn't immediately remove all of the natural consequences, but it allows God to remove his hand of judgment and discipline. It allows you to move close to him again without fear. Now, we all know that there are situations that if we don't deal with quickly, they can quickly grow and the consequences can become extreme. Uh, here's just one example. Some of you may be familiar with the Shel Silverstein poem, Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout would not take the garbage out. Uh, You've probably heard this, but if you haven't, I'll share a little bit. Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout would not take the garbage out. She'd scour the pots and scrape the pans, candy the yams and spice the hams. And though her daddy would scream and shout, she simply would not take the garbage out. And so it piled up to the ceilings. Coffee grounds, potato peelings, brown bananas, rotten peas, chunks of sour cottage cheese. It filled the can, it covered the floor, it cracked the window and blocked the door. I'm going to skip a little just so I don't gross you out too much. The garbage rolled on down the hall. It raised the roof. It broke the wall. Greasy napkins, cookie crumbs, globs of gooey bubble gum, cellophane from green bologna, rubbery, blubbery macaroni. Toward the end, it says this. Finally, it touched the sky. 
At last, the garbage reached so high that it finally touched the sky. And all the neighbors moved away. None of her friends would come to play. And finally, Sarah Cynthia Stout said, okay, I'll take the garbage out. But then, of course, it was too late. The garbage reached across the state from New York to the Golden Gate. And there in the garbage she did hate, poor Sarah met an awful fate that I cannot now relate because the hour is much too late. But children, remember Sarah Stout and always take the garbage out. Right? A little moral there. You let the situation pile up. You let that garbage pile up. At first, it's not too bad. You take it out. You can put it in a bag. Maybe spills a little on the floor. But you keep going with that junk. And it creates consequences that you can't overcome. We see this uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the story of Achan. You may remember this from Joshua 6 and 7. After Jericho, God had told the people to destroy everything including all of the gold and silver. It was dedicated to God, and so they weren't to keep it. But Achan's walking through the camp. This guy Achan sees a a gold robe he likes and some other things, and so he picks it all up. He takes it back to his camp in his tent, and he digs a little hole, and he buries it in the ground, right? I don't know if he thought it would compound interest down there or whatever, but he buries it down in the ground. He thinks no one's ever going to find it. Then they go out to battle again against Ai, and they, they get defeated terribly. The whole nation experiences the judgment of God because of this one man's sin. And he's given multiple opportunities to confess. Interestingly, as you read the account, Joshua comes to them and says, somebody has sinned. Tomorrow we're going to figure out who it is. Everybody get ready. They go to bed. Notice Achan doesn't confess. Next morning, he draws lots. They go uh, by tribe, then they go by family, then they narrow it down to person. All this time, Achan knows he's sinned, and I'm sure he's watching the lot get closer and closer and closer to him. And at any moment, he has the opportunity to step up and say, it was me, I did it, forgive me. But he waits until he's caught, until the lot falls on him, and then he says, oh yeah, I did it. But it's too late. And the judgment of God falls on his life, and he's put to death. You get to the New Testament, you think, well, that's, that's Old Testament stuff. We don't really do that anymore. You get to the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5. Sell a piece of property, they give part of the money to the church, they withhold the rest. That in and of itself was not the sin, but then they lied about it. They said, yeah, this is all the money. Peter says, why'd you lie? Why are you hiding? And God strikes him dead. Confession of sin protects us from the judgment of God. And it opens up the route for us to know him again, to restore that relationship and to begin to rebuild from the consequences of our sin. Fourthly, confession of sin paves the way for God to work. It paves the way for the spirit of God to work and do things in our life that he cannot otherwise do as long as we're hiding, as long as we're in the dark. Acts 19, 18 to 20, in the midst of Paul's ministry, Some of those who believed, says many of those who believed, kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books, that is their magic witchcraft books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Isn't that interesting? In the midst of Paul's ministry, uh, these men and women come and they confess their sin openly and they destroy these books. And you know what happens? The word of God grows and grows and grows and God's spirit spreads through these people and paves the way for people to know him, to worship him and to become disciples. 
As you look throughout the history of great movements of men and women of God, of the church of God, from uh, the first great awakening uh, all the way up to, you know, the Asbury revival of 1970 is a good illustration uh, on a college campus, Asbury, 1970 at a chapel service, a, a, a speaker invited the students simply to come up and share a little bit of their testimony, what God had done in their life. They began to confess their sins. They began to pray for one another. And this revival went on for days and days and it spilled over to other campuses and thousands of students came to know Jesus. Millions were impacted and began to walk closely with the Lord. Often God's work begins when we're willing to humble ourselves, confess our sin to him and to others. It paves the way for him to work in ways that he cannot work otherwise. For us to be effective in his service in ways that we can't when we're hiding. When we want to keep the dark around us instead of shining the light. And so maybe you hear this and you say, all right, I know I need to begin this process of practicing confession, but I don't exactly know what to do, or maybe I'm afraid. Let's look a little bit this morning then uh, before we leave at uh, how confession works. All right. How does it work? First thing is this. We see that God convicts us of our sin. Psalm 32, eight to 10, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In other words, as we pray, as we ask God to forgive our sin, to reveal our sin, uh, there may come a point when you're praying and God says, here's a specific way you have sinned or are sinning and you need to confess it to me. You need to confess it to others. And you've got a choice to listen, to humble yourself, or to resist and be like a mule that has to be dragged along and to hide, even though God already knows. Anybody who's worked with kids or has kids has perhaps observed one of those moments where a kid comes up, face covered in chocolate, and you say, what have you been eating? Nothing, right? Did you eat the candy bar that was sitting on the counter that I told you not to eat? No. Why is your face covered in chocolate? It's not, right? Okay, there's a wrapper in your hand. The candy bar wrapper is in your hand. There, there is still chocolate in your mouth. You're still chewing. <laughs> Did you eat it? No. Right? Now we laugh at that, but the truth is we often respond the same way. We try to avoid it. Well, it was someone else's fault. We try to hide. Now, it wasn't that big a deal. Uh, it was a mistake. Like we tripped on a banana peel or put too much sugar in the coffee. When the reality is that when God convicts of sin, what we're called to do is directly say, I sinned in this way. God, forgive me. John 16, 8 says that the spirit of God who lives in you convicts you of sin. Psalm 32 says, then listen and allow his conviction to transform you, to humble you, to admit it. Then we admit it and we ask for his forgiveness. That's 1 John 1, 9 again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, and this is the great news. If you know Jesus Christ, there's nothing you've done that is bigger than the cross of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that you have done that is so significant, it cannot be forgiven. And yet we think on some level there is. We think, well, if I confess this, if I open it up, God's gonna go, oh man, 
I didn't know you were like that, right? That's ridiculous. Jesus Christ died for every sin. There's nothing you can do that will, that will jeopardize your position before God. Every confession, every forgiveness will allow God to cleanse you and draw you closer to him again. And so we seek forgiveness. When I got married, I was not necessarily an expert at getting stains out of my clothing. I'm still not. Um, So if a shirt or item of clothing got really stained badly where I couldn't get it out, well, it was Sayonara. We'll see you later shirt. Uh, After I got married, though, I've noticed my wife is much better at this. So I can come home and it's like, uh, I've got a stain on here. I don't know about that. And she'll go, it's okay. We'll get out. I'm like, well, it's popcorn butter mixed with grape jelly. And... uh, She's like, first of all, I don't know how you did that to yourself. Uh, but secondly, we can, we can get that out, right? And so she has all kinds of tricks and methods and she can get it out. And uh, it seems that there are a few stains too significant or big uh, for her to remove. All right, as you look at the scripture, the same is true in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There is no stain. There is no sin that's too big for him to get rid of. And yet still we hide. Because we think we can get away with it because we think it's too much. And it says, no, he's faithful and righteous. He will cleanse it. He will forgive you and begin the process today of restoration. So we ask God for forgiveness and then we confess to others as well. Maybe that you need to confess to the person that you have offended. Matthew 5, 23 to 24 says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering There before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. In other words, if you come into worship, if you come in to sing those songs and you begin to lift your hands and you begin to pray and you begin to hear the sermon and you go, I've offended somebody. I need forgiveness. He says, you stop right there. You drop that offering. You stop singing that song. You walk out, you go find the person and you confess and then you come back. Because holiness matters that much. Because God cares more about your character than he does about your reputation. And he wants you to know him before you come publicly and profess to worship him. So it may be that there's a sin in your life that you have committed against another person this morning that you say, I need to go to that person and ask forgiveness. It may be that there's a sin uh, that you have committed either in the past or on an ongoing basis and you say, I know it's sinful, I know it's wrong, but I don't know who to confess because it's not necessarily against one particular individual. And I think that's what the role is of accountability. We confess to God, but then we can go to other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ and say, this is how I sin. This is what I'm struggling with. I need you to pray for me. And you can hear those people, those trusted few who will say, God forgives you and will speak to you the truth that in Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. I've been very blessed the last several years. There's two guys that I meet with on a regular basis here in town. And we confess sin. And there's this, this joy and this sense of peace and release and saying, uh, I sinned. And this is what I'm struggling with. This is how I rebel against God. And hearing them say, well, pray. Here's how you can grow. And Jesus forgives you. I would challenge everybody, if you don't have a relationship like that with trusted friends, pray for one. Seek it out. So that as a body of Christ, we hold one another accountable. As we confess our sins to God, we confess them to one another. Then we grow closer to God and to one another. And we are effective 
in the work he's called us to do. Then lastly, after we confess to others, we deal with the consequences. Like I said, not all the consequences are going to immediately go away. Just saying I'm sorry and confessing the sin uh, may not be the end of the situation. And it may be that there are amends we need to make. Amends that may take years. It may be that there's trust that needs to be rebuilt that takes years. And so by the grace of God, we say, I'll deal with the consequences. I think of David, 2 Samuel 12, after his adultery with Bathsheba. Although he confessed it and although God begins the process of restoration and he keeps his kingdom and he doesn't die as a result of his sin, nonetheless, his child dies. His adult children struggle with rivalry and deceit and sexual sin throughout all of their life. It has a ripple effect on his family. And yet not confessing would have made it much worse, as in the case of Saul, right? That's the primary difference. You ever wonder why is it that when Saul sins, God removes him from the throne. David sins, God forgives him. It's because Saul always gives excuses, always denies. I talked a few minutes ago about the kid with the chocolate on his mouth. Uh, There is an illustration almost exactly like that in 1 Samuel with Saul. He's supposed to go and Fight the Amalekites and God's instructions are fight them, wipe out everything, wipe out the livestock, don't keep any of them. And Saul goes and he fights against the Amalekites and he defeats them, but he keeps some of the best sheep and cows and things like that for himself. Prophet Samuel comes up and says, uh, Saul, uh, didn't God tell you to destroy everything? And Saul says, oh, oh, I did, I did, I did. I'm pretty sure, yeah, right? (laughs) Samuel goes, you did? Well, then what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ear? Oh, the sheep. Yeah, okay, the sheep. There were a few sheep that we really liked. And so we wiped everything else out, but we we kept those. Sorry about that. Forgot about the sheep, right? What does Samuel say? God's torn the kingdom from you. Yeah, when we look at David, we see David, when he's confronted immediately, he says, "I, I sinned. God, forgive me. And yet, there are still consequences. So it may be that We deal with the consequences for days, weeks, months, years. But confession opens up the avenue for God to transform us, that we can know him, that we can be trusted by others and trust others, and we can do the work that he's calling us to do. I'll close with a story. A number of years ago, I was preparing to preach actually about the life of David. And as I read through the life of David, I was struck just by this man's honesty and integrity and willingness to admit his sin and humility. And as I read it, uh, I was praying about it and the Lord brought to mind an incident in which I had offended somebody five years before that. I was a a professor from seminary. I had acted toward him in a dishonest way. And uh, the Lord's bringing this to mind as I'm studying this passage. And I'm thinking, okay, that doesn't have anything to do with my sermon. Let's just kind of put that on a back burner. Uh, It kept coming to mind. And so I stopped and I paused and I confessed it to God. Father, forgive me for this. And I began to move on. And then the Spirit continued to convict me and say, "Uh, you need to confess it to him as well. And I thought, there's got to be another verse or something I can preach on, something else I can do. But I just sensed, and in one of the most powerful ways throughout my life, I just sensed the Spirit saying, your ministry will not be effective like you pray for it until you deal with this. And I just couldn't get past it. So I sat down and I got out a pen and I wrote a letter and I put it in the mail 
thinking, you know, maybe the postal service will lose it, right? No, it got to him. But, you know, once I sent it, I just felt this, this freedom. This thing was no longer an albatross around my neck. I got a lovely letter back, a wonderful letter back, just saying, I consider the matter closed. You're forgiven. And it said, isn't it wonderful when the Spirit of God convicts us of our sin and our shortcomings? That's a gift from God so we can know him and walk with him and serve him. And it may be that you're here this morning and there's something that the Spirit is calling to your mind. And you just know until you deal with it. You won't know God like you want to. You won't have the impact for his kingdom that you want to have. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, for you the application is very simple. Until you know him, until you have trusted in him for eternal life, trusted that he has forgiven all your sin on the cross, until you've done that, no amount of confession, no words, no actions, nothing you can do is going to fix that relationship between you and God. Only by trusting in Jesus Christ can you do that. If you do know him, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're as reliant upon what he did now as you were when you first trusted him. And yet, in order to have this ongoing fellowship, this deep knowledge with him, you may be called this morning to confess to him your sin and then confess it to another. So as we close, we're just going to take a moment and each of us ask God, is there some sin in my life that you're calling upon me to confess to you? And then if so, it may be that you get up and you go out from here before you eat lunch, before you go see your friends or your family, and you say, I I need to go and confess this to the person I've offended or to another individual so God can work through me. Would you pray with me? For just a moment, just quietly at your seat. You don't need to say anything to anybody. Just ask the Lord, is there sin in my life that you want me to be aware of? Is there something that I need to confess? And if so, just take a moment and ask his forgiveness. Now, as we go from here, be aware that the Lord may have you confess to those you've offended, confess to a small group of friends who you trust, and begin the process of restoration. And Father, we pray that you would humble our hearts that we would hear your voice and be convicted of our sin so we can be transformed into the character of Jesus Christ so we can reflect you to the world around us. God, we pray that we wouldn't be stubborn like a mule or a horse, that we wouldn't be dishonest, that we wouldn't make you out to be a liar, but we would agree with you that we're sinners in need of your forgiveness. And so, Father, we pray, reveal to us our shortcomings. And allow us to bring them before you, receiving the forgiveness that comes from Jesus Christ. We love you, Father. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. You have a wonderful week.